If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Friday. Set participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1726, a woman in Surrey seemingly gave birth to rabbits. In 1749, an advert appeared claiming that a man could climb inside a wine bottle on stage. In today's episode, I spoke to Ian Keeble, who's the author of a new book called The Century of Deception, about some of the most audacious, bizarre and inventive pranks that fooled 18th century Britain. What kind of pranks did you uncover in England's Century of Deception, as you call it in the title? Yes, when I uh, came to write the book, I wanted to have as many sort of diverse possible hoaxes. So there were a lot to choose from, but I sort of picked out the ones which I thought were uh, most interesting and most fun and most most entertaining. Um, so the, they cover all areas, I guess, of hoaxes, from sort of literary hoaxes where uh, William Henry Ireland uh, decided that he wanted to forge Shakespearean papers and eventually came up with a, a full play called Vortigern, which he forged, uh, down to 
the outwardly very amusing Mary Toft, who claimed that she gave birth to rabbits. I'm in a couple of other, which are very different. Um, George Sarmanazar, who claimed that he came from Taiwan. It's now Taiwan. It uh, used to be called Formosa back in the 18th century and wrote an entirely sort of fictitious book all about uh, about the island and its history and what the inhabitants apparently were up to. And then you've got something like uh, the rather bizarre Cock Lane ghost, where this ghost comes back from the dead and claims that uh, she had been murdered. So you can see, yeah, a whole whole spectrum of of different hoaxes involved. Yeah, and hopefully we'll dig into a few of those in more detail uh, later in the conversation, because I'm sure people will be very intrigued by um, vengeful ghosts and a woman giving birth to rabbits. But before we do... What are you defining as a hoax here? So how is a hoax different to, say, a financial scam or a con, for example? Yes, I, I think um, it's it's sort of my my own definition, which I had to sort of do for the book, I think. My background is actually as, as a magician, uh, uh, as well as um, hopefully a researcher and a, a, an amateur historian, I would call myself, of the 18th century. And I specialise in in comedy magic, although occasionally my audiences dispute that title. And I I think that a good hoax has all the same attributes as a good comedy magic trick in the sense that they should both be fooling, but they should also be amusing at best. Um, And I do like to think that the perfect hoax does have that sort of attribute. Uh, in practice, as I discovered when I went through my uh, the 10 hoaxes, which I talk about in my book, I think only one of them actually really can be categorised as both um, amusing uh, and, and entertaining, because the other hoaxes all seem to have a sort of element of sort of uh, revenge or, or an element of cruelty about them, perhaps, um, all, all sorts of uh, differing reasons. But the one motivation which m- most of them don't have... Uh, um, in fact, I think only one of them really has, is a financial one. Uh, very rarely are hoaxes done in order to uh, to raise money, if you like, to profit the individual who's doing it. And under that definition, I, I think they do differ very much from a, a financial con or a scam, which is always uh, financially motivated. So in that sense, uh, a hoax in theory, anyway, is much more benign, although in practice uh, that isn't necessarily how it turned out. I, I also make a sort of distinction because uh, people talk about, um, I mean, if we look at sort of modern day hoaxes, uh, things like the sort of flat earth or, you know, whether we landed on the moon or not, um, that is more of a category, I think, of a conspiracy theory. And I, and I think a hoax can perhaps turn into a conspiracy theory in the sense that when the in the individual who first did it Perhaps the person who did the first crop circle uh, did it as an amusing joke, but then people took it on board and people actually believed that aliens did these uh, remarkable uh, figures in the ground, and it then develops into a conspiracy theory. So I do think my my distinction is is you have a hoax, you have the financial con and the scam, and then you have the conspiracy theory, and, and the hoax falls, yeah, flatly into how, between the two of them, if you like. Which somehow makes it way more intriguing, the fact that people weren't just doing it for money, that they their motivations are often a lot more difficult to unpick, aren't they, um, in the cases that you look at? Yeah, I when I wrote this book, because I because putting my sort of magical hat on a little bit, uh, there were two areas which I was particularly interested in hoaxes, I think. Uh, and one of them was um, why people fell for them. 
um, which I, I think is is very intriguing, which we can touch upon. But the other reason, indeed, is the motivation. Why why did the individual carry that out? And sometimes it's it's obvious. Um, for instance, my favourite hoax, I guess, which is the, the the most benign one I was talking about earlier, is the bottle conjurer hoax, where basically an advertisement appeared in a paper that a man would uh, climb inside a bottle on the stage of the new theatre in the Haymarket. Unfortunately, although the audience turned up, uh, the performer didn't. Uh, and But the reason for the hoax was basically to test the credulity or the gullibility of the English people at the time. So that is very sort of clear cut. Whereas perhaps the one where even today and back then they've got no idea what the motivation was is the one of Elizabeth Canning, the maidservant, who alleged that she was kidnapped and and had her stays cut off by a, a gypsy called Mary Squires. And she was imprisoned in this, what was effectively a brothel for 28 days, surviving on literally a loaf of bread and a bit of water. And then she made her escape after 28 days and returned home to her her mother. And I, later, it turned out that she'd almost certainly sort of made up this story. But we've really got no idea why she made it up. Uh, even today, and she went to her grave uh, saying that, you know, the story was true. And, uh, yeah, so you had these two sort of extremes, if you like, and most of the hoaxes I do reckon I've hopefully come up with why they did it, but uh, as I say, some of them are rather harder than others. Very intriguing. So as you mentioned, you are a magician yourself, and which gives you a very different perspective, I think, than a lot of the authors that we talk to on this podcast. How does that give you a different perspective to look at these old hoaxes from? When it comes to performing um, magic tricks obviously what the audience are just seeing is the uh, is the the trick you know they're seeing what we magicians like to call the effect and what they don't know or hopefully don't see is is the method and the thinking behind performing that trick and I, I think a hoax has the same attributes in some ways we see the hoax itself but what we don't necessarily see is the background to it and a very good example of this I think is Mary Toft who um, perhaps the most famous hoax of the 18th century in the sense that she claimed that she was giving birth to rabbits, which outwardly just seems absolutely absurd. Why would anybody possibly fall for, even back in the 18th century, why could you possibly believe that uh, somebody could give birth to rabbits? But there were two aspects to that uh, hoax, which I think uh, drew people in. One of them was a sort of theoretical one. There was this idea of sort of maternal imagination, which... Uh, said that uh, women uh, who perhaps had some sort of shock uh, or uh, came across some what they used to call monstrosity, uh, like somebody without an arm or something during their pregnancy, that could somehow transform itself onto the embryo and they could produce a child, you know, who was deformed in some way. And uh, Mary Toft fitted this theory very well because she used to be a hot picker in a field. She had a, a great longing for rabbits. She used to eat rabbits, apparently. She dreamt of rabbits. Uh, so she had a, a rather unhealthy uh, 
interest and attraction to rabbits, uh, so the theory would go. And this somehow uh, transformed itself to the embryos and she started producing rabbits. So you've got that sort of theoretical background and backed up with that, you've got this this woman who was just a brilliant actor. <laughs> you know, She was acting out uh, childbirth, um, they said literally up to sort of 23 hours in length uh, was she uh, supposedly pretending to be in labour. So convincing was she that uh, some of the male midwives said they could actually feel the rabbits jumping in her belly. Um, and on top of that, obviously, in order to produce the rabbits, um, to put it <laughs> rather crudely, she had to insert them uh, before they could come, come down. And the the male midwives were saying there's no way she could have done this because we were watching her for all this time. But as a magician, I know that it's very easy to distract audiences, to misdirect audiences. And she had like 23 hours to do it. Uh, she had accomplices. There would have been lots of moments when uh, there would have been the opportunity to do what she ne needed to do. And the doctors would have still have been convinced that they were watching her all the time. And this is true of, of magic tricks as well. People say, there's no way you could have uh, produced that card out of your wallet because I was watching your hands all the time. But the answer is that they weren't because at a certain moment we were able to um, to misdirect them uh, to think that they were watching when they weren't. So I was bringing these type of um, yeah m magical instincts and theories, if you mm. like, to, to look at some of these hoaxes. Sounds mm. like Mary Toft could have made a good stage magician in the 21st century. Yeah, I think so. And somebody actually who was even better than her in some respects was uh, a woman called uh, a young woman called Anne Robinson, who was a maid servant, uh, a maid for a Mrs. Golding. And this is the Stockwell ghost incident, which was essentially uh, one of the earliest poltergeists, uh, supposedly, where objects uh, in the house were thrown around and broken. And at the time, they had no idea how it was done. Again, all the witnesses to the event said they were you know, they were watching the maid. There was no way that she could have done it. Uh, but afterwards, she made a, a full confession. And it was almost like she was explaining how her magic tricks worked because she said things like she put sort of wires which she was pulling when people weren't looking to make the objects fall off. Uh, she dropped uh, a, some sort of chemical substance into some water so it sort of boiled. Uh, she was throwing objects when the people weren't looking. Most of the people involved were fairly elderly, so it was relatively easy for her to sort of run rings around them. And then she made this wonderful statement, um, which, uh, again, in her confession, where effectively she said, well, the reason why they were taken in partly was because they were exaggerating what they saw. And this is the classic um, response to spectators who are fooled by magicians, because they tend to exaggerate what they saw, partly because the magician points them in the right direction but partly because they want to explain to other people there was how impressive the trick is and that there's no way that they could be fooled. So if they make the trick sound much harder than it is, then it's harder for people to come back and say, well, you should have spotted how that was done. And that was precisely what the witnesses to uh, Anne Robinson were doing. They were claiming, you know, crockery was dancing and uh, uh, they were giving exact measurements of how far uh, a vase would be flung across the room. So she was they were clearly exaggerating the story in order that they would impress the people who were, uh, were recording it. 
So again, a, a, a perfect magician at work in the form of uh, Anne Robinson. With Anne Robinson, it sounds like there was a lot of effort required in some of the, the pranks that she pulled off, as you say, setting up wires and chemical agents. Why was she motivated to do it? Well, the claim later when she made her confession was that uh, she had a lover and she wanted to get her mistress, who was Mrs Golding, out of the house so that she could have an assignment with her with her lover. So that's the reason that she sort of started doing this to frighten the woman out of the house. But obviously, she got such a kick out of it uh, that when they moved into the neighbour's house, you know, uh, in order to to seek refuge, um, the same thing happened in the neighbour's house. <laughs> and uh, then she transferred to yet another house. Her, her niece, Mrs. Golding's niece, came on the scene and took her over to her house. And again, the same uh, crockery <laughs> was falling all over the place. And Pots. So she obviously uh, started, maybe that was her motivation to begin with, but then it just became great fun. Uh, she could obviously see all these people uh, running around scared. Um, I mean, it only lasted about 24 hours because uh, she was sent away on an errand. And of course, all the activities ceased. So they worked out that uh, it must have been her. So when she returned, she was then promptly given the boot. Do you think that this was a particular golden age of hoaxes and pranks? I, I think it was from my perspective, well, perhaps from the 21st century perspective, uh, partly, I think, because um, I think some of the pranks that did take place could not have taken place later. I mean, for instance, the Mary Toft, I think, but, you know, by the end of the 18th century, people would have had acquired enough medical knowledge to know that there's no way that somebody could produce uh, rabbits. Uh, similarly, the, the Cock Lane ghost, this idea of a ghost coming back and uh, somehow accusing somebody of a murder, I think that would have been more questionable, again, as we sort of get more into the Enlightenment and realising that such such matters couldn't happen. Uh, also, just knowledge about uh, a place like uh, Formosa or Taiwan, again, you know, there w- would have been more knowledge 100 years later about the country, therefore there's no way that somebody could have made up all these ridiculous facts about it. Um and perhaps, again, with the, the Shakespearean forgery, as people became more aware of how uh, of Shakespearean writing and uh, analysis of his work, um, again, it probably would have been harder for somebody later on to have got away with that. But uh, yeah, there's just something about these which may, I think make them particularly amusing and, and special. Something that comes up again and again in the book is this idea that that you mentioned earlier in the uh, in reference to the bottle conjurer of English credulity. Um, what can you tell us about that idea at the time, and and was it a fair reputation? Were the English particularly credulous? Yes, English credulity seemed to have, or the phrase seemed to have crept in actually at the time of, of the bottle conjurer hoax, and it was this idea that somehow the English were particularly gullible. And I think it was very much tied up with a sort of xenophobic attitude towards uh, the foreigners, particularly the French and the Italians. So there was this idea that the these people were coming over and gulling us, as the term was they, they used to use back then, uh, taking advantage of our good nature. Um, I mean, there's a classic cartoon uh, of a Englishman who's represented as a sort of John Ball um, 
you know, nice figure, nice jolly figure, and then a, a nasty Frenchman coming along and sort of picking, uh, picking his pockets. This was actually to do with a balloon hoax that took place in, in 1784, which was a, a man called Chevalier de Moray, who said or, or tried to make the first flight in this country of a manned balloon. Uh, it had happened in France the year before. Uh, unfortunately, his balloon really wasn't up to it, and he charged money to come and see him take off. But unfortunately, the, the balloon uh, singularly failed to inflate. Uh, and after three hours, he had to sort of give up, and a mob sort of attacked him, and he had to sort of run for his life. But what appeared in the press afterwards was here was this Frenchman, as they called him, who was deliberately uh, once again trying to fool uh, the nice Englishman by charging them to come and see him fly in the balloon. I mean, ironically, he wasn't even French. He was actually Swiss. Uh, but this sort of comes up um, again and again, where if some event happens, it even if foreigners aren't involved, somehow they are assimilated into it and accused as being part of it. I don't think there's any evidence to, to back it up, but it is a phrase that just is used again and again uh, once it started, this idea of English credulity, and it's reprised and repeated right through to the end of the uh, 18th century. And and some of the pranksters that you look at will be familiar to listen. There's their, their familiar names, uh, one of whom is Jonathan Swift, um, who took up a campaign which I, I would say we could characterise as essentially trolling of the astrologer John Partridge. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, J Jonathan Swift's uh, campaign is one I particularly admire, actually, because he was having a go at a, an, an astrologer, uh, a man called John Partridge. And astrologers were very big back in the 18th century. Uh, they made a lot of money by selling their almanacs. They were making predictions which were always um, open-ended, so it was hard to disprove an individual prediction that somebody might make. So, for instance, they would say uh, a lawyer is going to uh, be uh, come to a high post, but they would put a question mark against it. So if the lawyer did come to a high post, they could claim they were right. Uh, and if he didn't, well, you know, it was only a question anyway. Or they might say, good news from France, although not all might be of that opinion. So, of course, that covered both ways, because uh, whatever the news was, you could take it either as good news, although you might not take it as good news. So it's very difficult uh, to attack these uh, astrologers. Uh, so uh, what Jonathan Swift did, because he particularly had a dislike for, for John Partridge, who was... Uh, very against uh, the policies, particularly uh, in the religious world, of, of what Jonathan Swift believed in. Um, so he basically set himself up as a, as, a, as a phony astrologer under the name of Isaac Bickerstaff, and he made a prediction, and his prediction was very specific. He said, on the end of March uh, 1708, uh, John Partridge is going to die of a fever. And this sort of turned astrological predictions upside down because they were never, as I've mentioned, ever that specific. And John Parcher was found it very hard to deal with it. Uh, um, all he could really do is say, well, I, I'm not dead. 
Um, <laughs> uh, but obviously, this took uh, took time to to respond to because he was uh, had to wait till his next almanac came out. And in the meantime, as you say, uh, Jonathan Swift sort of on top of making that prediction in the original almanac, he then produced a little uh, letter where he basically pretended to be somebody who'd been to John Partridge's deathbed and actually witnessed his death. And he also wrote an epitaph on him as well, uh, an amusing epitaph. Uh, apart from being a uh, astrologer, um, John Partridge was also a cobbler uh, and also a sort of quack doctor because he would use his almanacs to sell his, his rather dodgy medicine so uh, Jonathan Swift wrote this little uh, little epitaph, and one of the lines was, uh, "Here, five foot deep, uh, lies John Partridge, uh, a star monger, a, a cobbler, and a quack. Uh, weep all you customers who use his almanacs, his pills, and his shoes." So a very uh, sort of amusing uh, response to uh, to John Partridge. And when John Partridge came back and said, "Look, I'm still alive." Uh, Jonathan Swift came back again and said, well, I don't think you are because nobody who was actually alive could write such nonsense as as you write. Uh, so it was this sort of amusing, uh, yeah, attack on John, on John Partridge, uh, which was very successful, really, in making him look a bit, uh, a, a bit feeble. And I think it also sort of undermined Almanacs to a certain extent. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I'm not sure if you would see that today. I, I don't think you would see well-known and famous figures necessarily getting involved with with hoaxes today that turn up. So again, it seemed to have more impact, if you like, at the time in involving uh, influential and you know, important people. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com history extra. Just go to Indeed.com history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You mentioned earlier uh, William Henry Island, who um, 
made forged Shakespearean texts, essentially, um, and also wrote an entire play and managed to get people to go and attend. <laughs> what can you tell us about how he managed to pull off this um, coup, as it were? Yes, William Henry uh, Arland was the son of Samuel Arland, and Samuel Arland was uh, a successful sort of writer and engraver, but he was absolutely obsessed by Shakespeare. Uh, he wanted, desperately wanted a Shakespearean signature. I think there were five known Shakespearean signatures at that time. And um, he sort of travelled to Stratford-upon-Avon to buy uh, Shakespearean memorabilia. He was obviously slightly gullible because he, he bought a chair that apparently belonged to Anne Hathaway and that uh, Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway had, had a sort of cuddle in it. Um, so he was obviously a man who, who was slightly gullible but was also extremely obsessed by collecting anything to do with Shakespeare. Uh, his son uh, was much brighter than his father thought he was. His, his father was always very sort of rude about him and sort of put him down. And I think possibly that his motivation to begin with his son was in order maybe to get the sort of affection of his, of his father. So he began to discover uh, Shakespearean ephemera. Uh, his backstory to this was he'd met a man who was called Mr. H, so he never actually discovered what his full name was, who surprisingly has a, a chest of uh, Shakespearean documentation and he is quite happy for William Henry to go along and sort of help himself to this documentation, which he does and hands over to his father. But what's very clever about William Henry is he doesn't start off by producing an entire new play written by Shakespeare, because if he'd done that, nobody would have believed him. But he starts off with very small items, very unimportant items, like a sort of bill of exchange. So a very boring item. All that it has about it, really, is that it's got Shakespeare's signature. And he sort of hooks his father in by that method, because everybody there at the time think, well, why would anybody want to bother to forge a, a, an unimportant document? And then he produces sort of invoices, and uh, eventually he goes slightly high. He produces a profession of faith, which... Um, uh, Shakespeare had apparently written. I mean, at this stage, there would begin to be some sort of warning bells, I think. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, the spelling which he uses, he uses a lot of E's on the end of words. But by this time, because his father's accepted the early uh, work, it's very hard for him to then say that a later work is questionable. I mean, he does question uh, William Henry comes in with a... Uh, a drawing, which is a very crude drawing, which he said was by Shakespeare, and his father says complete nonsense. But then the son produces a letter which sort of mentions this drawing, and at that point, you know, the father buys it. So eventually, he comes in with this complete play, and by this time, his father is totally convinced that these documentations are, are originally done by Shakespeare, and therefore accepts the play, believes it to be genuine, and he even sort of invites people around to his house to look at his documentation and he gets them to sign a book to basically say, yes, we agree that this is um, uh, this documentation which you have is, is genuine. So he's using sort of confirmation bias, if you like, from his friends in order to substantiate his, his theories. And eventually, yes, uh, for one night of this play, it's staged. It's not. It's actually not as bad as as one might think. Um, and in some ways, it's undermined because the leading actor, a man called John Kemble, 
really doesn't believe in the play. He thinks that it is a, it is a forgery. And uh, there's this line, which is uh, which is in the play, which goes, and when this solemn mockery is over. And before he delivers that line, he pauses, he sort of looks at the audience, basically winks at them and says, and when this solemn mockery is over, and pauses again, and the whole audience sort of burst out into laughter. And that's basically... Uh, the end as far as uh, this play is concerned. Uh, it only has that one night. But again, uh, it's just this way of of slowly suckering his, his father into it. And there are people who think that Samuel Allen knew all about it, but I don't. I, I just think that the way William Henry did it was, was very clever and very sort of devious, uh, bringing his father in so that by the end his father was willing to believe anything. So clearly he played the long game and he wasn't the only prankster to do so. So so George Shalmanazar, who you've mentioned before, he carried out, I mean, almost a lifelong hoax um, that he, he pretended he was from Formosa, now Taiwan. What kind of lengths did he go to to convince people um, of his identity and how did he get away with it for so long? Yeah, again, that's a fascinating story, George Shalmanazar. I mean, he obviously started very young, uh, pretending to be somebody else. He actually earned money by pretending to be a, a pilgrim uh, going to Rome uh, and pretending to be from, from Ireland. And he was sort of used to beg arms. He spoke fluent Latin and uh, was very convincing with that. Um, eventually, in his sort of late teens, he joined up with the, with the Dutch army uh, for some reason. And it was during that time that he pretended at first to be actually from Japan, um, and he began to adopt what he felt were the customs of Japan. He sort of made up a Japanese language. Um, and then he met a man called the Reverend Alexander Innes, who was a clergyman, and he saw through George straight away. But together they sort of concocted this idea that he would convert George from the heathen religion of a far eastern country to, uh, to the Anglican faith. And together, they might be able to make a name for themselves. But they decided at this stage to drop Japan, a little bit too well known, and go for Taiwan or Formosa, as it was known back then, which is just off the coast of of China. And uh, that's what they decided to do together. And having determined that, and I think part of the reason George was willing to go along with it, because at this stage he wanted to get out of the army, and he saw this as a possibly as a sort of ticket to get out, uh, because... Uh, Alexander Innes wrote to the Bishop of London and said, look, I've made this amazing conversion. Would you like to meet him? Um, So at that point, George had to (laughs) convince people that absolutely he was from Formosa. So he started uh, again. He adapted his language to be now Formosan. I mean, to the extremes that he went, he started eating raw meat, um, which he said his digestive system was able to cope with, again, in order to demonstrate what a... uh, you know, what a strange country he came from. So having sort of adopted this this pose, he then comes to London, where he's immediately accepted by the Bishop of London. And I think that's part of the reason he got away with it, because you had this very authoritative figure going around telling people that George Sarmanizar was generally from Formosa. And, you know, he was the top of the Anglican Church, so people obviously went along and believed him. And this often happens w- with hoaxes. If you've got an authoritative figure who who you know, shows that 
apparently demonstrates that the hoax is true, then the more people are likely to believe it. I mean, there were lots of things that, <laughs> that you would have thought were against him. I mean, the fact he was a, a white man, you know, with blonde hair, how on earth could he possibly come from, from Formosa? But his uh, he always had a response. He was brilliantly clever. Uh, on that case, he said he came from a very wealthy family and they didn't let him outdoors much back then. And this sort of uh, shoehorned into the racial stereotype of that time that, you know, the colour of your skin was dependent on how much you were exposed to the sun. Um, I, I love his uh, debating as well. I mean, he was actually approached by Edmund Halley, who would later become the Royal Astronomer, who tried to catch him out. And he said, "In uh, at what angle, he asked him, does the sun hit the hearth when it comes down the chimney in Formosa? And George said, I got no idea. Evan Halley said it's above the tropic of cancer. Of course, it comes straight down the chimney. And George's response, well, in Formosa, we have crooked chimneys. So end of that argument. Um, so basically, he had lots of attributes uh, that made him get away with it. He, he was, by all accounts, a very pleasant young man. He didn't seem to have any vices. He, he wasn't a drinker. He wasn't a womanizer. He didn't seem to be exploiting his fame particularly. And therefore, those people who believed him in sort of invested him as, as, a, you know, as, a, as a nice young man. He, he was a perfect example of somebody who would convert to the wonderful Anglican faith. He had a phenomenal memory. Whatever he said about Formosa, he never withdrew it or never retracted it. And again, it's quite hard to argue with somebody who uh, sticks to the same line always. He was never caught out. And he put this into his book as well, because when he wrote this entirely fictitious book about, about Formosa, whatever he'd said to somebody uh, in public, he actually put that in the book. And, and the best example of this is he claimed that uh, the Formosans worshipped a sun god and on uh, New Year's Day they sacrificed 18,000 small boys to the sun god. And this comes out in the book. And of course, people said, well, this is absurd. You know, wouldn't this depopulate the island very quickly? And what he did was he said, well, when I said 18,000, that was the maximum number, but the priests in their discretion could sacrifice less. And in any event, if they ran out of boys, they could always move on to girls. So he had these sort of um, wonderful answers. Um, and the other great thing he had going for him is that Formosa wasn't that well known. Uh, certainly not the entire island. So even when people said, well, I've been to Formosa, it's nothing like what you're saying, he would say, well, you've only been to the perimeter of the island. I lived in an enclave in the centre of the island and our customs were completely different from uh, those people on, on the external part of the island. So all these factors, um, the ignorance about Formosa, his convincing stories, um, you know, made him, uh, enabled him to get to get away with it for quite a long time. And having sort of started down that path, it was very hard for him to retract it, I think. So uh, he couldn't exploit it uh, after a period of time. Obviously, he had to, to move on and earn his living elsewhere, which he did actually become quite a good hack writer. And uh, he also became very good friends with Samuel Johnson. Um, uh, in fact, Samuel Johnson said he was uh, the ma George Simonazar was the man he most admired, but not because of his fictitious stories over Formosa, he said he wouldn't even talk about China with uh, with George. It was more to do with the fact that he, towards the end of his life, he clearly became very religious. I think he became very hardworking. And I think Samuel Johnson really admired that aspect of, of George. And he went to his grave, uh, still claiming he was from Formosa, but he wrote this uh, autobiography, which was published posthumously, where essentially he tells the story of how he got away with it. It's so interesting that a lot of people 
really sound like they kind of busted him, but he was able to just keep it going, perhaps because he was so amiable and people didn't want to challenge him too much. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, that's true of, um, I mean, if we look at sort of conspiracy theories, there are lots of people who who bust conspiracy theories, but there's still a whole uh, collection of people who who still believe in it. And, and I think that was true of George. You know, a lot of people were extremely sceptical. I, I, I'm sometimes asked, is there, is there a modern day equivalent of George Simanazar? And I usually mention Yui Geller, actually, because I think when Yui Geller first burst on the scene, uh, I think it was back in the 1970s. But uh, I think people, he, he appeared on, on the David Dimbleby show and um, he bent a spoon. And I think that probably 99% of people watching at that time genuinely believed that he bent the spoon by the power of his mind. If you uh, turn around to today, I think, you know, 99% of people probably think that it's done by trickery. Uh, I'm not making any comment on that. <laughs> but uh, the point is that Yuri Geller still claims today uh, that he can genuinely bend spoons. Uh, and I think that's almost like George Simanazar, if you like. He, he's still living because what's the advantage of, of saying at any point, you know, no, I made it all up. There's There's no... Uh, there's no advantage in doing that, really. So just keep keep it going and have fun with it. My my final question to you would be: What all of this can tell us about the 18th century more generally? Maybe the anxieties of the age, the preoccupations of the age, or perhaps that there was a kind of an environment where where really exciting, fantastical stuff like this could emerge. Yes, I, I wouldn't want to exaggerate the the impact of hoaxes. Obviously, I'm looking at a very sort of niche subject, and uh, you'll rarely see a, uh, a hoax appear or mentioned in a uh, in a historical book about the 18th century. But I think what it does do is tell us something about about the people and the times. I think one area which uh, it does show us is how information was disseminated back then, because um, when a hoax like, for instance, the Elizabeth Canning hoax or the Bottle Cundra hoax or the Mary Toft hoax, they appeared in newspapers and journals, which is what you would expect. But also back in the 18th century, you had pamphlets. Uh, pamphlets were very common then, which tended to be uh, slightly, uh, well, attempted to be uh, comical or trying to make a, a, a point. And for the Elizabeth Canning case that took place in uh, 1753, there were no less than over 40 pamphlets uh, devoted to the subject, which shows how uh, how much people were, were interested in the subject, but they were the buying all this information about it. But not just um, reading matter of, of journals and newspapers and pamphlets. There was also satirical prints, effectively sort of cartoons, uh, 18th century equivalent of, of cartoons where hoaxes were depicted. So that was another way that people got information. You know, this is obviously pre-photography, so that people could see the imagery of, of the people involved. Uh, I mean, Mary Toft, the, the rabbit hoaxer woman, was very notorious, and uh, an engraving was made of her, which was sold, again, so people could see what she actually looked like. Uh, there was also court transcripts. Uh, two of the hoaxes, which I look at, the Cock Lane and the Elizabeth Canning, had court cases, and these are reproduced in tremendous detail in court transcripts. And also a theatrical reproductions also of, of the hoaxes. Um, back then, they had what they used to have what they used to call afterpieces. They used to have the sort of main event, which is often a Shakespearean play. And then they would have 
what we would think of maybe as a pantomime or a farce that would be an afterpiece that would happen after the main event. And it often involved a harlequin. He was a sort of stock comedic character. But what they would do is they would incorporate topical events into these afterpieces, just like we do in pantomime today. You know, we put in Brexit or the coronavirus into our pantomimes. So they used to do that in the 18th century. So, uh, the Mary Toft uh, rabbit hoaxer case pops up in theatre, the Bottle Cundra does, uh, the Cock Lane ghost, the Stockwell ghost as well, all pop up in these um, these afterpieces. So we can see, as I say, how information is, is, is disseminated. So I think that's one aspect of the hoaxes, which is r- really interesting. Uh, another one, I guess, is, yes, it does tell us something about uh, people's beliefs at the time, Um Obviously, with the Mary Toft tells us uh, the medical knowledge wasn't that great when it came to uh, the production of rabbits. We know about uh, the belief in ghosts and the belief in in witches as well. Um, And also, perhaps, in the Elizabeth Canning case, you had Mary Squires, who was this gypsy. There was a lot of xenophobia around her, tied up with anti-Jewish sentiment as well. And again, she's incorporated and actually in the engraving she's reproduced as a witch so again it's telling us something about uh, how how people feel um it also tells us something about the disparity between men and women as well because it's it's interesting in this in the hoaxes i look at most of the men who perpetrate the hoaxes tend to be wealthy men uh well-off men of, of sustenance uh whereas all the women are obviously poverty uh, from poor families um they are in uh, areas of occupation fairly basic ones like sort of maid servants or a hot picker in a field as as mary toft was um and the women in my view are much more enterprising and have to work much harder for their hoaxes than any of the men do who who tend just to sort of write something down uh, from comfort and perpetrate the hoax uh, by sitting and study and and writing it out in some capacity, so I, I think again that that tells us something about uh, about Georgian society. And finally, perhaps uh, th- there was a general interest in in hoaxes and about the reliability of information. It was interesting that somebody said when the bottle conjurer hoax took place that. Uh, somebody wrote and said, uh, "It wouldn't have been great if the bottle conjurer." had actually happened, i.e. this man had actually uh, gone inside an ordinary-sized bottle and sung and danced inside it because it would disprove uh, David Hume, who had just written about uh, about miracles at the time and uh, his sceptical attitude towards miracles. And, you know, if if this bottle conjurer had worked, this would demonstrate that uh, perhaps David Hume was not correct in his uh, philosophical theories. Um, and uh, I, I think, again, uh, Samuel Johnson got involved with the Cock Lane ghost, of which a lot of people pulled scorn on him later on. But the reason he was interested in investigating whether the ghost existed is because he was very interested about uh, the idea of an afterlife. And if he could actually prove that a ghost could come back from the dead and give information about something which was what not known about uh on the earth, i.e. that somebody had killed somebody by by poison, this would definitely demonstrate that an afterlife existed. So that was part of the reason he was interested in that. So, yeah, there's all sorts of of undercurrents and interesting aspects. And so I said the final point, but one other final point is that you get some really uh, interesting people, you know, 
people like Samuel Johnson and Ben Franklin and uh, Jonathan Swift, uh, the Duke of Cumberland, who was the second son of George II, uh, involved in these hoaxes. I'm not sure if you would see that today. I I don't think you would see well-known and famous figures necessarily getting involved with, with hoaxes today that turn up. So again, it seemed to have more impact, if you like, at the time in involving uh, influential and important people. That was Ian Keeble. His new book is The Century of Deception, The Birth of the Hoax in 18th Century England, which is published by the Westbourne Press. It's on sale now and you can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Neil Oliver will be speaking about 100 moments that defined world history.